Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 13. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary man? But will you weary my God also? In chapter 6 of Isaiah, Isaiah beheld God in an epiphany. He had a vision of the throne room of God with the cherubim standing around him, praising him, singing, Holy, 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 glory to God in the highest. And God's glory and his power overwhelmed him. And he responded to God's calling and said, Here am I, send me. And God replied, Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Our text this morning falls in the context of the first prophecy that Isaiah gave after his calling. It's a story about how King Ahaz, the king of Judah, was given a promise that God would deliver him from a coalition of kings. The king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the king of Syria had combined to depose him and put another man on his throne. And Isaiah comes bringing this, this gospel message that God will deliver you. Ask for a sign. Our text is Ahaz's response. I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Ahaz proclaims to be pious. And he quotes the books of Deuteronomy and Exodus, refusing to test God. But what is really going on here, as we can see by the prophet's response, is that Ahaz is refusing to trust God. It is not testing God to ask for what he commands us to ask of him. It is not sacrilegious to seek the blessings and promises of the gospel and of God's covenant for his people. Isaiah was embarking on a new ministry. And one of the ways that God verifies the prophets that he sends is by fulfilling their words. In giving Ahaz such an invitation to ask for a sign, Isaiah was proving his own authenticity. But Ahaz, instead of believing God's prophet, put his faith in men and in his own intrigue. We know from the books of Kings and Chronicles that he sought help from Tiglath-Pileser III, which may sound familiar to you Deo Gloria students. The king of Assyria, and that, that was the expanding empire of the day. He took the gold of the temple and bought the king of Assyria off to attack the kings of Syria and Israel. And here is where we come to confess our own sins. We have been the recipients of great prophecies and earth-shattering promises. We have been given the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. How often have we refused to ask God 
what it is that we need or that we want or that he commands us to ask of him. How often, how often do we turn to our own resources and our own plans instead of turning to God and waiting on him? Are you wearying your God? Our faith is in the God of heaven who has all power in his hands. And he is also the God who personally interacts with each and every one of us by his spirit and through his son. He numbers the hairs of our heads. And he feeds the birds of the air. He promises good gifts of great bounty to his people. Jesus told us to ask, seek, and knock in no uncertain terms. At Presbytery this fall, one of the other pastors told me how their church decided to start praying specifically and more directly for the blessings of God. And specifically, they prayed for seven new families and for a new church building. And guess what happened within one year? Exactly what they asked. God granted their requests. So believe, trust, and ask, because God is faithful and he is able to do it. On the flip side, confess your unbelief. Confess your refusal to trust in God and your leaning on your own understanding. Because God is faithful and he is able to wash us as clean as the driven snow. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please kneel and for you all this morning. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you it because I want you to hear it and because I want you to know it. And this is what I'm going to tell you. I love you. I love you. I look around at you and I thank God for bringing me here you. When I consider the privilege of the last three and a half years, I praise God. He's good. I know this may sound a little uncomfortable or even cheesy, but it's true. And you need to hear it, and I need to say it. And if Christmas is not a good time to tell you this, then I don't know when is. In fact, Christmas is the perfect time to tell you this. God told us that he loved us at Christmas. He took on our frame so that we might know him, so that we might have a relationship with him. He communicated love by telling us plainly. He sent the angels singing distinctly and clearly, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Then he gave to us exactly what we needed, the fulfillment of his promises. He gave us a baby, born of a virgin. He gave us a baby who would become a prophet, a prophet who would reveal the Father to men. He gave us a baby who would become a high priest. 
who would atone for our sin once and for all. And he gave us a baby who would become a king, who would rule with all justice and mercy and power and love forever. So God loves you too. Happy Advent and Merry Christmas. This season is a wonderful time of blessing and cheer, of goodwill and good wishes, of bell ringers and Christmas shopping, decorations, presents, family, singing carols, and sending Christmas cards. But while our culture rightly celebrates God's goodness in sending us a Savior, while our culture rightly celebrates Christmas, this season can also be one of the darkest and hardest seasons of the year. Especially for those who are struggling. None of us wants to be a Scrooge. None of us wants to walk around saying, Bah humbug. But when we see all the joy and the celebration, it can cause us to consider and wonder, what's wrong with me? Why don't I feel as happy as everyone else looks? Why am I so frazzled or frustrated or worn out or even sad? It might be how overwhelming life can be in this season. Maybe it's the cooking and the decorating that are too much. Maybe the strain on the budget or the events and all the extra organizing and work that comes with celebrating the season. It could be the stress of family get-togethers and dealing with difficult relatives. Considering this past year at our church, maybe it's the new baby and not enough sleep. And often, it's the mundane things that get to us. Those are the hard things. And, and no matter what it is that, that causes you to wonder about this, we can be left wondering, where is my joy? Where is my peace? Where is my hope? And I pray that this morning's message will be, be a source of those three things, of hope and peace and joy for you in this season. God knows that we all need this message. He told us in Proverbs, in the wisdom of Solomon, that a merry heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. And our text this morning is definitely cause for a merry heart. I know in your bulletins it says Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, but I've actually expanded it to 9, verses 2 through 7. So first we see in our text, Isaiah 9, verses 2 and 3, the effects of this gospel promise. There's, there's great joy promised to God's people in Isaiah 9, verses 2 and 3. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The joy and the rejoicing are palpable here. He just repeats himself. Joy, rejoicing, joy. The joy, they're palpable. This is the joy of revelation. The light breaking through into the darkness. And this joy is driven by 
increase. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. The, the, the nation has grown. Rejoice. It's driven by provision. According to the joy of harvest, we read in verse 3. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. That's, that's the, the, the joy that comes with knowing that God supplies all of our need. And the third thing that it's driven by is victory. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So we see here that God has given us great joy. Next we see the causes of this great joy. Deliverance from burdens is the first cause. Verse 4. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. The reference to Midian is about Gideon, the, the judge. In the day of Midian, God used a, a relatively small band of men acting in faith. He called Gideon to, to, to relieve his people from the deep oppression that the Midianites were crushing them with. And, and, and he called the Israelites to himself, and God said, that's too many. So he sent home all the ones that didn't want to be there. God said, there's still too many. So God said, you know, if you've got any other things going on in your life, go home. And then it's still too many. And God said, okay, now you go drink in the river. And depending on which way you drink, I'm going to decide which ones get to go. And only 300 men were left. And God, and remember the, the jars and the torches and, and the horns? And God confused the Midianites. And God used a small band of 300 men to confound and destroy the armies of Midian. By acting out of faith. And the point is that God is the one who provides this deliverance from oppression. Ultimately, this verse is fulfilled in Christ, in our deliverance from the yoke of slavery to sin. The next cause for joy is deliverance from war. Verse 5. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. This verse is reminiscent of the other verses about beating swords into plowshares. This joy is driven by freedom from battle and bloodshed. And it's depicted by use, using, the, using battle gear as fuel for the fire. There's no longer any need for it. So let's put it to what use is left of it. And that's a great promise. And we still haven't seen this promise fulfilled yet. There's still battle that goes on today. But yet it's a great promise, and it's a promise that's our promise. But how is this possible? How can this come to pass? And the only way is the establishment of peace through a new government. A government that's set over all and establishes peace and justice. And here we have the third and final and ultimate cause of the joy of God's people. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How is this possible? The answer is Christmas. That's the answer. How will war be done away with? A child will be born. 
a babe will come to us. A babe who will take on the role of governing all of creation, all of heaven and earth. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. God will send a Messiah, a child, a son who will make it all come to pass. He is born to rule and to have ultimate power. That's the purpose for which he came. To rule and to have ultimate power. Consider his names. Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Jesus is God. Everlasting Father. And Prince of Peace. He will be no ordinary child. He is, as our Christmas carol puts it, the hopes and fears of all the years that meet in Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. Christmas is the answer. Now the last verse of our text describes for us the title of today's message, which is the perpetuity of the promise. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we see perpetuity in scale. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Eternal growth of the kingdom that God has placed in the hands of Jesus Christ. Jesus' kingdom will never cease growing. And this was as good as accomplished in the promise. And it's as good as accomplished in the promises because of the nature of God. God if God gives you a promise, and God is ultimate and absolute and cannot lie... It's yours, which is why we can rejoice at the receiving of the promise. But God fulfilled the promise in the fulfillment of the promises, in Christ's birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and ultimately at his ascension. So Jesus will perpetually order and establish his kingdom with judgment and justice. Now, I keep saying this word, perpetual and per perpetuity. And those are big words. And we have little people here. So what do I mean by that? Perpetual is continual. It lasts forever. It has no end. It's eternal. That's what perpetual is. And perpetuity is eternity. It's time without end. There's, there's no... It's infinitude. It never stops. It keeps going on and on forever and ever. So what this means, what Jesus Christ perpetually ordering and establishing his kingdom with judgment and justice means, is that as long as Christ rules in heaven, which is forever, there will ever be further and greater manifestations of this truth. Righteousness and peace will expand on the face of the earth. Christ's government increases, ever taking over more and more land, more and more hearts, more and more cultures, 
more and more kingdoms. He's the king of kings. When he encounters another enemy kingdom, he overcomes it. Now this perpetuity in scale is matched with perpetuity in time. Our text reads, from that time forward, even forever. And I will grant, because of the definition of perpetuity, that perpetuity in time is a little redundant. But I want to emphasize that time reveals Christ's rule. Time reveals Christ's rule. History is a book which openly declares Jesus' lordship over heaven and earth. This, if you look at the world and world history, you will see the growth of the kingdom of heaven. And it doesn't look like what we necessarily think it will look like. But by the, through the eyes of faith, and through the grace of the Holy Spirit, and, and the application of God's word, we can learn and see. We can see the light that is being manifested into the world. So we have a perpetuity in scale, a perpetuity in time, and then we see that, this, that it has a perpetual drive. This isn't the kind of perpetuity that's, that's weak. It's a perpetual drive. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The final accomplishment of these promises rests on nothing less than the zeal of the God of armies. That's what Lord of hosts means. The God of armies. He's a God who is thunderous. A God who is powerful. A God who overcomes. God, our God, is invested in His plan. And it will happen as sure as anything. He has taken a vow by his own name to do this. He promised Abraham. He promised David. He promised the Israelites. He promises us. He is going to do it. He has done it. And he will do it. And he's doing it now. So let's break this down for us. What does this mean for you and for me? It means that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for the world. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if I were to define that briefly for you, the gospel of Jesus Christ is his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And then that application of that to you, the good news that Jesus did that for you, in the gospel, God proclaims to mankind peace and goodwill. God invites us to identify with the people in the darkness who have seen the great light. He invites you and me. He asks us, walk into the light. Come, come, see, see, understand, perceive. He's no longer saying what Isaiah was saying to, to the king of Judah. See and don't perceive. Hear and don't understand. Now God has opened up the floodgates of salvation to the world. It's no longer a remnant that will be saved. But righteousness will cover the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
This light does shine in the darkness, for indeed we are the people who have walked in darkness and have seen the great light. It doesn't matter what your ancestry is. It doesn't matter who your people were, or what your background is, or what your pedigree is. Even God's chosen people are the ones who say a people who are in the darkness has seen a good, the great light. God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, walked in darkness. And all the Gentiles even more so. Anybody who comes to Christ is coming out of darkness into light. Anybody who confesses his name and is washed by his blood is given revelation from God. And that revelation sets you free. It liberates you from the power of the devil. By the Holy Spirit, we are set free from our bondage to sin and all of its minions. The devil, the world, and our own flesh. We're set free from the tyranny and the dominion of those enemies. We're no longer guilty of sin. The power of the devil is in his ability to accuse you. Look how bad you are. And God looks at you and he sees Christ's righteousness. He sees the sins nailed to the cross and dealt with. And he sets you free from the guilt and punishment of that sin. You're, you're free. You're liberated. We are no longer guilty and we no longer need to fear the accuser. This is God's work. And we rejoice at our astounding freedom and liberty. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an ongoing work, though. We long for the day that all swords are beaten into plowshares. How glorious would that be? The end of war. The end of tyranny. The end of oppression. We long for the day that all the garments of war are the fuel of fires. So instead of making nuclear warheads, we're now heating houses. We long for that day. But even in our longing, by grace, we can see the effects of peace on the pages of history. I referenced this a little bit ago. Wherever the gospel goes, life improves in the long run. There are those who are on the front lines. We're about ready to send Matt and Helen there. There are those who, when, when they share the gospel, when they proclaim it in public, they suffer for it. And being a Christian is hard. It's harder than not being a Christian. In the short term. But in the long run, in eternity, ultimately, life improves through the gospel. As Christ's kingdom goes forth and his enemies are toppled, truth is established and the church matures and wisdom is gained. Now the weapons of our warfare are not the same as those of our enemies. But the weapons of our warfare are nevertheless effective in toppling our enemies. Jesus Christ came into the world, into into Bethlehem and he was attacked right away by the king of the of the Jews and God delivered him 
Ultimately, he was killed by Pilate, the Roman governor. And yet the gospel overcame Rome. It took a couple centuries, but it overcame Rome. And then a Christian Rome, through her apostasy and arrogance, was destroyed. But the gospel overcame the gods and the Visigoths and the pagan kings that came and conquered Rome. And it led to a Christian Europe. And as Europe apostatized and the Roman church adulterated the gospel, God made way for a new world power for our country. Founded by believers. And he gave us great freedom and great liberty. Liberty. Where the gospel goes, life improves in the long run. We have great blessings that our forefathers fought for, that they didn't have. But they believed the gospel, and they loved Jesus. And even today, we're seeing the expansion of our faith by exponential numbers in places where Christianity is heavily persecuted. In Africa, in China. No matter what happens, we can know and be sure that Jesus is ruling. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts is accomplishing the establishment of justice and judgment. Of righteousness and peace. And that his kingdom is on the rise. We are small. We are nothing. We're, we're nothing but dust and ashes. We're a small church in a small town. In a confused culture. In a, a confused culture that's not maintaining its Christian heritage. And our culture has turned away from its obedience to our Lord. And so we, we look and we watch. And we wait for God's revelation about what he's going to do and where he's going to do it. And we serve where we're at, which is what he calls all of us to do. But even as we see our culture wane and pray for God to reform it and call us back to faithfulness and cause it to wax, cause the gospel to wax strong in America, we need not despair about the downward spiral we see around us because we still live in exciting times. All history hinges on our Lord. We are pilgrims. We are citizens of another kingdom. We live in his world. And it's, it's, it's fact in our world. We live in the year of our Lord, 2014. And it's 2014 because that's when Jesus was born. Now they got the dates off a little bit. We're five years off. But all history hinges on when we thought Jesus was born. All over the world, it's 2014 and coming on 2015. We live in exciting times because you and me, we have access to our God, who is the God of all creation. We have access to Him through prayer. We have access to Him through His Word. And we have access to Him by His Spirit. And we can praise God that we're little because He loves the, the underdog. He blesses the humble. 
He loves the small beginnings. And he loves the story of David and Goliath. Jesus Christ overcame Satan through a simple maid and a baby born in a cattle stall in a backward province of the world. And today, his light still shines clear. His kingdom still grows. His son is still called and ever will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And he loves you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Jesus is Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. We rightly call him so. And he does reign in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, wielding all authority in heaven and earth. But his magnificence does not detract from his nearness. The fact that Jesus is in heaven, the fact that he has all authority in heaven on earth, does not separate him from us. Jesus loves you. He knows about every hurt and burden that you bear. He cares for you intimately. He hears your prayers, and he desires your peace and to give you life. He lives within you. You are his temple. He sends his spirit to comfort, console, to lead, and to guide you. And he promises you that all these promises are for you, personally, individually, and corporately, as a member of his church body in this meal. Christ's body, broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.